Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, today I'm going to continue my analysis of the Da Vinci Code. Now I know we might be experiencing Da Vinci Code overload, but last week I talked about just one theme from this topic, namely the divinity of Christ. I argued that the claim that Jesus is divine can be found in the earliest texts of the Christian tradition, can be found in all the Gospels. The Da Vinci Code suggestion that it was invented in the 4th century is ridiculous. But there are some other important themes from this Da Vinci Code. I wanted to touch on just two of them in this second talk. The Gnostic Gospels. Where does all this speculation about Jesus and Mary Magdalene come from? Well, a lot of it comes from these texts, these Gnostic Gospels. What are they? They were texts written, maybe the earliest ones come from the middle of the 2nd century, the later ones maybe into the 5th century. Many were known, by the way, in the ancient church. Others were discovered only in 1945 in the Egyptian desert. The Gnostic Gospels were... Accounts of the life of Jesus, sayings of Jesus, but shot through with the Gnostic philosophy. Gnostic philosophy was a nasty business. It's still around, by the way, in different forms, and it's still a nasty business today. At the heart of Gnosticism is the claim that spirit is good, matter is evil. It's a radically dualistic system. The whole point of the spiritual life for the Gnostics is to escape from matter. Some of us, they claimed, had a spark of divinity in us. The idea is through a special knowledge, hence Gnosticism, gnosis in Greek means knowledge. Through this special knowledge, I could manage to escape from the realm of matter. Jesus on this Gnostic reading is an avatar from the spiritual world who appears in this physical world, but his whole purpose is to get people out of matter. Well, when the early church read these texts, it said no to them for obvious reasons. The book of Genesis says that whatever God made is good. Spiritual realm, yes, of course, that's good. But so is the realm of matter. So is the world. So is the flesh. So is sexuality. All of it is good. And so the church resisted the Gnostic tendency to drive a wedge between matter and spirit. More to it, the great claim of the New Testament is that the Word became flesh. Not just apparently so, but really so. God entered into this fleshy material world in order to save it. The idea was not to draw people up out of it, The idea was to save it because it's good and is worthy of salvation. Because of these two basic convictions, the church very early on said no 
to Gnosticism and no to the Gnostic Gospels. So why have they been revived in recent years? Well, I'm speaking here as an academic. I'm someone that loves to read and write and research. Academics love novelties, especially when there's a little edge of the dangerous about them. Something has been discovered that had been kept quiet for a long time. Something that challenges the status quo. Well, academics can't resist that sort of thing. And so many scholars in recent years have revived the Gnostic Gospels. Another reason, some claim the Gnostic Gospels are more feminist. Well, it's true that in some of them, women play a rather prominent role. But you know what? Color me very skeptical when it comes to the feminism of the Gnostic Gospels. On the Gnostic view, women were at a lower level than men because women were more associated with the earth, with matter, with childbearing. Men were seen as more spiritually uh, advanced. Here's a clue, by the way. At the very end of the Gospel of Thomas, one of the most famous of the Gnostic Gospels, we find this little passage. Peter asks Jesus about Mary Magdalene. Jesus says, Yes, I am going to turn her into a man because I want to save her. She has to be a man first before she can be saved. Well, now listen, if that's feminism, then I'm the emperor of China. I mean, that doesn't strike me as a very feminist text. So, they've been brought forward for different reasons, academic reasons, maybe to some degree political reasons. But Dan Brown and others have drawn from these texts these fanciful ideas about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Can I press a comparison with you? Suppose I were to sit down to compose a biography of George Washington 200 years after his death. I sit down to write a biography of George Washington. And it's fanciful, not relying on historical sources, but coming out of my own imagination. And in this story, I say George Washington had an affair with Dolly Madison, and the two of them had a child together. And then I place in the mouths of George Washington and Dolly Madison, the other characters, my own peculiar philosophy. Hmm. That's pretty close to what the Gnostic Gospels do in regard to Jesus. Written long after his time on earth, written not with historical accuracy in mind, written to put forward a peculiar philosophy. Why anyone would think these Gnostic Gospels, therefore, are more reliable than the canonical Gospels is beyond me. But that's where an awful lot of this business is coming from. The view that they give a more accurate account of Jesus is just nonsense. A second theme now I want to talk about. And it's a bit dangerous. It's a bit dicey even to raise this question, but I think it's important to raise it. When I first read the Da Vinci Code, and it was at the prompting, by the way, of a parishioner who told me that lots of people were reading it and lots of people were confused by it, troubled by it. When I first read it, I thought, this book is in the genre of the anti-Catholic screed. That's a well-known genre, by the way, stretching back at least to the 19th century in our country. What do you find in the Da Vinci Code? Oh, this view that the Catholic Church is a nefarious international organization whose tentacles have stretched into 
business and government and culture. It's headquarters in the Vatican with sneaky, dark figures whispering their lurid conspiracies in the dark hallways. The Catholic Church is the enemy of truth and opposed by a courageous band of rebels. Well, listen, you go back to the 19th century in our country, you'd find thousands of tracts and books and articles with exactly the same theme, exactly the same treatment of the Catholic Church. Remember that famous cartoon? It's by Thomas Nast from the 1870s or 1880s, I think. A time when a lot of Catholics were coming into this country. Well, it shows Catholic bishops arriving on the shores of America like crocodiles. Their mitres are like the mouths of crocodiles. They're lined with teeth. And they're invading these pure virginal shores of America. Well, that was a common view in the 19th century of this dangerous foreign institution of Catholicism. Go back to the 1840s, 1850s. You'll find the Know-Nothing Party in this country. Very successful political party predicated upon fierce anti-Catholicism. Go into some of the major cities, Boston, New York, Chicago, elsewhere. You'll see convents and churches and Catholic institutions burned to the ground by angry mobs, stirred up by just this kind of anti-Catholic sentiment. The Ku Klux Klan was not just anti-black. It was anti-Jewish and anti-Catholic. And the Klan flourished after the Civil War well into the 20th century. In fact, major rallies were held in big American cities well into the 20th century. Indiana, by the way, was a center of Klan activity. Fierce anti-Catholicism. You know what's perhaps most disturbing when you read this history? even at the highest levels of the culture. So not just the mobs, not just common folk, but the highest level of the culture, you find this same anti-Catholicism. In the writers of books, the writers of serious uh, journal articles. Also in the speeches of politicians. Ulysses S. Grant gives a talk, I think sometime in the 1870s, that is fierce and embarrassing in its anti-Catholicism. And the same, frankly, is true of Woodrow Wilson, now well into the 20th century, will give a speech that is unnerving in its anti-Catholicism. Al Smith runs for president in 1924, fiercely opposed because of his Catholic faith. You know, a fair amount of this went underground after the election of JFK in 1960. But you know what the Da Vinci Code convinced me of? it didn't really go that far underground. You know, in polite society, you're not going to find this explicit anti-Catholicism, but I think this very deep strain is still discernible within the culture. And when I read the book, I thought, that's what this is. It's a revival of these old ideas. So what do we do? What's the right reaction to this book that denies the divinity of Jesus? that brings forward in an irresponsible way the Gnostic Gospels, that revives to some degree these nasty anti-Catholic sentiments. Well, my own feeling is we shouldn't engage in boycotts. We shouldn't engage in lawsuits and that kind of direct uh, action. I think that tends to backfire and tends probably just to make the book and the movie a bit more popular. 
But I do think we Catholics ought to be clear, bold, and articulate in our opposition to the themes of this book. Not hysterical, but not naive. Clear, intelligent, articulate in our opposition. I think it's good, by the way, let your kids go to the movie. Let some young people read the book, but then sit down, have a good conversation with them, point out the difficulties, point out the problems. And finally this, let this be a teachable moment, as they say, an opportunity for the church to deepen its understanding of its own faith. How many popular novels do you know mention Jesus, St. Mary Magdalene, Opus Dei, the Vatican, the Council of Nicaea? Well, not many that I know of. Now, mind you, the Da Vinci Code gets almost all of it wrong. All of it's mixed up, but the themes are raised. Let it be an opportunity for us, for Catholics and their kids, to deepen our appreciation of all of these great themes. Study them, talk about them, read about them. Go on the web. There's some very fine sites that go through the abuses of the Da Vinci Code. Read those. Acquaint yourself with the literature. Let's take advantage of this moment. Just a last thought. You want a moving, brilliant, literarily compelling, theologically rich account of the life of Jesus? Don't read Dan Brown. You want all that? I'd recommend to you Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708-449-6100. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.